You're listening to... Hey, he said I could do it this time. Look, do you want to fight or would you rather go by forces and push the big guy out together? Take him out. Okay. okay. Jinx, 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 wacky. You're listening to Jeff Lax Live with our dad, Jeff Lax, on the legendary Zev Brenner Talk Line Network. He is talking news with views so his ratings don't dive. It's the moment you've waited for. Here comes Jeff Lacks Live. The left really hates him and he's ready to fight. But the joke's on them because so does the right. Here comes Jeff Lacks Live. You can't top him. Don't try to stop him. Here comes Jeff Lacks Live. Listening live to Jeff Lax Live on 620 AM WSNR and as always streaming on the legendary Talkline Network. The legendary Zev Brenner Talkline Network, talklinenetwork.com. You can call the show at 646 926 4699. Give us a call. We got a few minutes for calls today. 646 926 4699. And you can tweet the show. At Jeff Lax Live, at Jeff Lax Live. Welcome to another show, everybody. Great to have you. Now, today was a very, very odd day for me, kind of a surreal day. I went back to my office today for the first time in two years. Two years. Now, I don't remember what the exact, I'm actually going back to my calendar and try to see when was the exact day that I was last in my office. Not sure if I can even actually know for sure, but it was just about to the day. I mean, if anything, maybe off by a day, two days. Not sure if I can figure out two day, two years, two full years. It was definitely March 2020, the last time I was in my office. And I go in today. Now, I work on a college campus, as some of you know, many of you might know. At Kingsborough in Brooklyn, I go in today. We're driving there. Boy, it's like it is muscle memory, definitely, because I mean, there was no glitch, and luckily the traffic was not good. Bell Parkway, I'm taking, but not crazy. So I was able to get there. And then I go in and I see a lot of the same, you know, I'm on a college campus and they, we've had online classes for two years. And I go back today and we see a lot of the teachers for the first time, which was nice. And the office staff, which was really nice, and there were a lot of hugs. Some people wore masks. Some people didn't wear masks. I met with students, talked to them about how they feel about being back on campus. It was very weird. Very weird. My office was a complete mess. Two years of not <laughs> looking what's going on in there and cleaning crews coming in, and they make little changes every week to all the stuff I got in there. So that adds up over two years. A little change every week for two years, you have a lot of mess when you get back there. Oh, my God. They broke some of my stuff. But really weird. I mean, weird. 
I want to say good to be back. I don't know. It's just weird. I, I, maybe it'll sink in in the coming days and weeks, but just weird. Now, tonight, um, we have a, uh, a really, really compelling show for you. We have Natasha Hirschhorn, who is, was a double refugee from Ukraine, fled Chernobyl in 1986. You know, her house, it, growing up in Chernobyl, you got to hear this story was 60 miles from Chernobyl. Now, for those of you who I just watched the Chernobyl HBO miniseries, an um, unbelievably compelling and well-done series. Horrifying, but well done. I watched it in like two nights. Um, she, now, so for those of you who watched it or those of you who have watched documentary, other documentaries or, or stories about what happened that day in 1986, the huge nuclear screw-up, which is what it was in Chernobyl, you know that the exclusion zone, the area of danger, which is going to be dangerous for, I mean, according to some estimates, depending where, a hundred years, a hundred years. And according to other estimates, tens of thousands of years was, so that exclusion zone was thousands of square miles wide around the actual power plant. Her house, 60 miles from Chernobyl. So we talked to her about that. And then she fled for good in 1992 from the Soviet Union to come to America. So we're going to talk about that. And of course, we're going to talk about what is going on today with friends and family she has there. And we'll do that right after this. Hi, I'm Zach Lax. My dad hosts this show from the brains behind the operation. Good news. If you want to be a radio star like me, we've got open lines. Give us a call at 646-926-4699. That's 646-926-4699. Tell them you know me. You'll get right on. We're back. You're listening to Jeff Lax Live on 620 AM WSNR. And as always, streaming on the legendary Zebrana Talkline Network, talklinenetwork.com. And with everything going on, obviously, in Ukraine and the uh, the horrible events in Ukraine, and it seems like every few minutes there's another terrible story coming out, uh, we have on with us, and I'm very pleased and grateful to have her, Natasha Hirschhorn. Now, Natasha is a native of Kiev, Ukraine. She studied musicology, piano, and composition at Moscow's Gnesin Musical College and the Kiev State Conservatory before receiving her cantorial ordination from the Academy for Jewish Religion in New York. She's the author of numerous liturgical and secular compositions, and she's an accomplished performer and recording artist. Since 2004, Natasha served as the Chazan and music director at Anche Chesed, a conservative synagogue on the Upper West Side in Manhattan, as well as the musical director and conductor of the H.L. Miller Cantorial School Chorus at the Jewish Theological Sem- Seminary. Natasha, thank you so much for joining us. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, you wrote a piece in JTA talking about you're born in Ukraine, talking about your family history in Ukraine. So tell me a little bit about, well, first of all, you know, when did you leave Ukraine and what were the circumstances around your coming year? I, I was born in Kiev. I um, went to elementary school there. I uh, was finishing up my uh, middle school and uh, ended up going to Moscow uh, for college and then 
uh, when I returned back, I studied a little bit in Kiev Conservatory. Um, and I, in 1992, uh, that was the time when I had a chance to come here. I was getting involved in uh, various uh, uh, possibilities of performing uh, Jewish music, which was very, very new at that point and very uh, fraught, but I was excited and I really wanted to study more of Jewish music. And the only way to do that was to leave and go to either to Israel or to America. Um, and that was 1992. I was able to come here to the United States. Um, I was able to study Jewish music as I had intended. I feel very blessed about it. And so it's basically 30 years ago that I came. Here. So you grew up in Soviet Ukraine, right? Until you were, I'm not sure how old you were when. Well, yes, I was, I was 20 when I came. Um, so I, I definitely grew up, my, most of my childhood and, and teen years was, was Soviet Union. Right, Soviet Ukraine. And you wrote in the piece in JTA, so basically you said you fled Ukraine twice. That once you fled after Chernobyl... And uh, the other time, what you just mentioned was 1992. So tell us about the Chernobyl experience for you and your family. Uh, it's, it's, I know that people are, you know, finding out more about it because there, there, uh, a tremendous documentary that appeared. Yeah. It was, it was a terrible, um, event. And I think it would have been terrible anywhere in the world, uh, ecological disaster, you know, human disaster, but what it was, it was made worse by the Soviet authorities' uh, complete unwillingness to share any information that could help people, save people's lives, save people's health. Um, so we knew that something happened on April 26th. It didn't know much more about it, and uh, people were people were worried. Um, but not getting any information. And then people who happen to have, you know, you never know what you'll need, Geiger counters would say, listen, I'm measuring um, the level, radioactive level of dust on my balcony. It's off the charts. So people start getting very worried. Um, the, apparently, the, the, in the beginning, the wind was blowing north. So some of the European countries got those um, higher radiation levels as well. And they're the ones who, who raised the alarm initially. But the, the government was still denying anything. In fact, it was a few days before the May 1st, which would have been a typical day to have a demonstration, a peaceful workers' demonstration on the streets with families, with little children. And they didn't want to cancel it. They, 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 kept in, they didn't just prevent people, like they didn't want to protect people from going there. They were like encouraging people. They, they were demanding that people should go on this demonstration so it was like we were getting two completely different informational channels one yeah. was saying everything is completely fine and lovely uh and one is was saying oh my god something terrible happened you need to flee and it's actually reminiscent of what's happening now you know that what people like in putin's russia are getting everything is wonderful yeah. everything you know they're getting completely like 180 degrees informational uh twist yeah as opposed to what's happening so uh to make the story short and but this is also connected to what's uh happening today makes it so painful um we have we have a we have dear friends that i grew up with and they decided that they will flee 
this this little family, the mother, the grandmother, and two daughters, they will flee to Moscow. And at that point, people would go anywhere that they could, like literally the most vague connection would be um, utilized. They wanted to go to a studio apartment of the grandmother's friend from 50 years ago. And they said, and we'll take Natasha. So my parents, who couldn't leave at that point, there was nowhere to go for us as a family. Let me go. And I, this was my experience of, you know, completely crowded railroad station, standing part of the way of this 12-hour ride to Moscow, you know, perching on the seat somewhere, arriving there, trying to find more friends where I could stay with. Um, and I was 14. Um, so this is the family that rescued me. And this is the family we are in touch with. And this is the family that is right now stuck in Kiev because hmm. my friend's mom is in her mid-80s. She cannot leave. She cannot, like, really... You know, she she's not, you know, they're not able to to leave now. They really cannot leave because they're 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 stuck. There's like no green corridor is open for them to leave, and um, they're just you know trying to trying to somehow survive. And this is the family that you know rescued me and and changed my life for the better. And I cannot help them. Wow. So I want to I want to come back to what you're talking about now, but I want to just first go back a little bit to Chernobyl. So you're saying so you're 14 years old, it's 1986, and yes. uh, it sounds like a lot of people on their own. By the way, I just finished the documentary uh, that you're talking about. For now, I don't have you watched it. I watched parts of it. It was actually too hard for me to watch. Yeah. It was just too, too triggering but yeah but i know it, it's great and i read parts of it like in you know with the book that was used in, in it. well first of all let me ask you did you or anyone in your family fall ill from what happened in chernobyl how far were you from the disaster so um we kiev is is 60 miles south from chernobyl about 100 kilometers so it's close um it, there were uh Definitely, you know, our family, I think, managed okay. Um, and uh, I know that uh, there were a lot of, you know, there was like a lot of abnormal birth around that time. There was, there was uh, a lot of uh, cancer, uh, can cancer yeah. thyroid, you know, uh, issues and, and uh, older uh, people who were older who had any kind of health issues, there were there was uh, you know um, higher um, mortality. Um, we also you know it's not like we had access to information. <laughs> right. So this a lot of this what we were hearing at that time was anecdotal was a friend of a friend. So yeah. So how were you getting information? So so April twenty sixth that ha was it April twenty sixth that the disaster happened or the twenty seventh? Yeah. Yes, 26. So how long after April 26 did you start to really have concerns that it wasn't safe? Uh, uh, a few days after, the, the information started trickling in, in really small uh, spots, uh, like small doses. And then um, and the more we heard, the more we became concerned. Um, and then after the May 1st demonstration, there was still supposed to be a May 9th demonstration, which would have been to celebrate the end of the World War II. Um, and uh, so they were still not releasing enough information. But at some point they started saying, well, you, if you go outside, you should like wash your hair because it has dust and dust is not great for you. But they were, they were, they were very stingy with the information. And um, 
so it was it was really like the word of mouth like i i have a geiger counter i'm telling you what's going on like you know people people communicating with each other and people were used to this kind of a under the radar communication because that's that was the only way actual so everyone it sounds like everyone knew the soviet union was lying is that is that accurate that most people knew that they were being lied to i would say maybe you know the the young children would have been protected from this knowledge i would it's hard for me to imagine that majority of adults wasn't fully seeing this for what it was you know which is like we are making things look good but you know um something bad is happening but they were so used to it it's like it's yeah but you're uh, you're telling me people started fleeing at some point i mean how long after april 26th did that happen i think i think i now don't remember if it we we left on may 8th or may 9th but that's you know at some point people realized the level of of danger to their health to their lives uh, at some point, they also started evacuating. They they started evacuating people in the immediate zone first, the thirty kilometers, then more. But then, what would happen is they would say, "Okay, th- there's two schools, one across the road from each other, right? And this one falls into a zone of evacuation, and this one doesn't." So they would say, "Well, the the, the children from this school should go away for the summer. The children from this school can stay. They're across the road from each other." Right. But what what I'm confused about is it sounds like you said you're 60 miles away from Chernobyl. In the documentary, it basically said that the exclusion zone was thousands of miles. So, uh, it, yeah, it uh, sounds like you were well within that area. For sure, for sure. But, you know, the, 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 the Soviet government created sort of this artificial, very, very small uh, uh, circumference around, you know, the, 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 the disaster. And right. they said that is here and outside there is no danger and obviously people with any capacity for logic could see that this this doesn't compute and that's how the panic started and that's how you know leaving became extremely difficult because everybody was trying to leave who had you know a modicum of, of possibility right so what when so it sounds like at some point you returned to ukraine when you after you fled to moscow when, when was that so i Russian education works, uh, Soviet education, and I think st- still does, uh, at that point it worked this way, uh, that you could you could go to have a professional degree in college while completing your high school. So my plan was to do that, uh, to go to music college in Kiev. But because of Chernobyl, when I ended up in Moscow, I went to college there and ended up being a great thing. I enjoyed my education. I loved my teachers. I loved my friends. It was a great time for me. And um, that's when I started actually getting interested in Jewish music and uh, wanted to study more, realizing this wouldn't be the place where I could do it and looking for ways to leave. And our whole family wanted to leave. And um, when I finished college in 1990, um, I had a choice to apply to conservatory in Moscow or to return to Kiev to, to be with my family. And uh, my family said, look, we, 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 we are trying to apply to leave to America. Maybe you can um, return and go to conservatory here. So if we get our papers, if we get permission to leave, we will be all together and we'll leave. So that's how I came back to Kiev. So it sounds like most of your family stayed in, in the same house even after Chernobyl. And, they, and luckily, they're all they, okay? They, 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 they're, I mean, 
everybody has has health issues, but I'm I'm grateful that they're 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 okay. My my both of my parents and my older brother um, are okay, and they're also here now in in New York. So okay. I'm very grateful for them. Do you? I want to get to the current situation and the family you still have. And you talked about in JTA in Ukraine, but I want to first ask. And by the way, I'm very obviously glad to hear that everyone's okay and sorry for whatever health issues there are wish them the best um but it's very crazy to me here for me to hear that you were 60 miles away because all the it it doesn't even sound like the that kind of an area away from chernobyl is even safe today from 1986 i mean everything you see uh in the news and when you read about this is that the contaminated area that close to Chernobyl is still not safe, even today. Even even in a hundred years from now, they say it may not be safe. So, I mean, do you have concerns about that? Does it worry you? I'd be I'd be really nervous about it. <laughs> well, uh, you know, the the usual coping mechanism for the things that are very scary but you can't change is black humor. So, uh, so there's a lot of black humor coming out right afterwards. We couldn't really change it. You know, we couldn't do anything about it. Uh, I think once the, the 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 hope was that once the 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 um, the nuclear reactor was covered and sealed, then the worst of radiation was uh, contained, and that you know the you know the surrounding areas and especially the the major city like Kiev, Kiev was was now safe. Yeah, and I certainly uh, don't want to make things worse for you and scare you or anything <laughs> like that. It's, you said it was hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> Right, 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 right. No, I mean, it's this is where you you look at the terrible situation. They think it's better now, and and you can't you can't change it. And people people have nowhere to go, so they they yeah. live there, they live there, you know. But of course, it's terrible. And that was terrifying when, uh, you know, in their progress toward toward Kiev, uh, Putin's forces, uh, you know, we're 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 shelling Chernobyl. Like, what are you crazy? Crazy, I know, <laughs> insane, right? Just insane. <laughs> disaster for for the whole continent certainly for you for all of europe right but, uh, it, you know and then they, and then the same thing was a nuclear reactor in the plant in zaporizhia it, it it's like they it's like the, the the depth of how little they care is is just astounding well you have a madman right he's a madman it's like you yeah. know he may use actual nuclear weapons who knows join me and together we can rule the airwaves as listeners and Jeff Lax. All right, let me ask you a question. I do want to get to Putin, but we before and, and the war, and and your family and friends that are there, and everything you talked about in the JTA piece. But I want to first, before we get to that, I just want to ask you one more question before that. What was it like growing up in Ukraine as a Jewish person? Um, it's a complicated answer. I, uh, the, I mean, I, I, the, the more honest, the more complicated, right? So, uh, for my great grandparents, it was disasters. They paid with their lives. They were actors in Yiddish theater in Kiev. They were sent to. Because of that connection, they were sent to Stalin's concentration camps. That's where they perished. For my grandparents' generation, on um, you know, it was also terrible, but um, just in different ways. They 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 were able to, uh, you know, my one grand my grandfather was at the university. That's where he met my grandmother. 
another one was was a was a journalist was a was a theater critic he was arrested by stalin in 1937 and sent to basically uh arrested and murdered very shortly and um it, there was so much like it was if it wasn't hitler it was stalin there was so much yeah. bettering and a lot of it has to do with being jewish but some of it was just you know living in soviet union uh it wasn't necessarily connected to being Jewish, it was just anybody who, who expressed any independent thought could be accused of something for whatever reason. People just lost their lives and lost their lost their futures, lost their families. Yeah. Um, you know, for my for my parents, for my brother, it was more like, you know, you know, as a Jew you have to have the most excellent grades to get to any into like any kind of college uh you know, to get your education, people managed. There was, you know, routine anti-Semitism around. Uh, then we, but we also had this wonderful this the, the friends that I mentioned to you about who were trying to rescue us during Chernobyl and who are now stuck in Kiev. They, this is not a Jewish family; it is a Ukrainian family, and they were dearest friends. And they were, you know, there was no sense of that we are so different because we're Jewish and and they're Ukrainian. So mm -hmm. it's it's really a, it's a complicated mix, and I think what's important to realize that yes ukraine is a country with a tremendous uh history of anti-semitism um and it's also not the country that it is uh th that history is is has been in many remarkable ways overcome by but what they've created in the past 30 years and certainly in the past 10 years that it's really a, a, a much closer, not a perfect country, but much closer to sort of a, a typical democratic, uh, you know, country that could be European country. That's part of their attraction to, to you know, be part of uh, the Western European community. That's what they, they want to join. They don't want to go back to Putin's uh, Russia and its its ways. Um, so it, the changes is remarkable, you know. So for me to say, even in 92, when I tried doing my first performances of Jewish music with a group of friends, we had trouble from the local police who were like, who are you? What are you doing here? It was sort of allowed, but not quite allowed. They didn't know what to do with us. We also, it was funny, at that point, uh, Chabad was the only uh, Jewish presence in Kiev. And they were not terribly supportive of us either because, well, these are girls singing. They're, they're, they're young women singing in public. That's not very good. Hmm. So we were kind of stuck between, uh, that's partly was where we felt strong need to, I felt strong need to, to leave because I, I didn't, this, I couldn't be, I wanted to be Jewish. I wanted to understand more about what it means to be Jewish, but I realized that in that environment, I quite couldn't. You, you couldn't win either way. You couldn't, you, you, from either side of it, you could, it sounds like you couldn't win. Um, no, no. Yeah. Even Chabad today is, is, is so, I mean, they're doing heroic work on the ground today in, in Ukraine and so many yeah. different cities, saving lives and, and evacuating people. So it's, things change. You know, if I only, if I'm stuck in like what it meant for my grandparents or even my parents' generation and not see the change that happened in the last few decades and since Ukraine gained, gained independence, that I'm, I'm just not seeing an honest and full picture. And obviously, electing a Jewish leader in Zelensky is evidence of that. Outside of Israel, there's not, not so many examples of that. Right. 
Absolutely. And we still haven't had a Jewish president in America. So, I mean, you know, there you go. All right. So let me ask you. So, I, you know, usually with something so big that's going on right now in the world, I would get right to that. But your history with Ukraine is so relevant and, and developing up to what's going on today, I thought was very important. But let me get to what's going on today. So you still have family and friends in Ukraine. Please talk about them a little bit. And what are, what are you hearing from them? What's going on? How, what, is their life, what, are, what are their lives like right now? Um, well, it's, it's terrible. I, we, have, we, have a, we have a little piece of good news that the, the family I was particularly worried about, you know, we are, all my immediate family is here. This is a family connected to my brother's family. Um, and they, they made it to Slovakia. They, they, they got out. Um, so that's a huge relief. Um, but, um, you know, we had, we had family in Kharkiv, uh, my mother's cousin, who I had never thought I would say this, who thankfully passed away a couple of years ago. So she's not living through it as a, as a 90-some-year-old woman who is, who is on her own. She's not living through the bombings, through the shelling, through the destruction. Um, but we, we, you know, we have family in Mykolaiv in the south of Ukraine. Um, the, the, some of most, most people, the, the women and the children were able to escape. The men had to stay on because they're, uh, they have to fight if they're between ages 18 and 60, you know, and then there's this family that I mentioned, you know, the, this Ukrainian family that was so instrumental in helping me back in 86 and they're, they're, they're stuck in Kiev. And they're, you know, they're trying to figure out when is when is when it's a safe interval to run out and and try to get some supplies, some water. Oh some, my gosh! So, Imagine having to live it, like that. Unbelievable. You know, and when I speak to my friends, I speak to you know my my friends' friends. These are people who up until you know two weeks ago led basically like normal lives, not dissimilar from ours. They they were working. They had. They enjoyed many freedoms. They, uh, you know, they took care of their aging parents, of their young children. They they led lives. What they are now, first of all, if if they're not hiding out still somewhere in a subway at night or or in their house, if they don't have easy access or no mobility, like my my uh, friend's eighty five year old mother, they're they're refugees. They're 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 in a hideout. They they're cut off from necessary medication there's just you know my 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 facebook feed is flooded with with horrible stories you know here's two orphans you know can anybody help find their father their father may be in romania let's let's try to find you know here's the you know um all the poor animals left behind i mean it's like the, the human the, the the tragedy the the tragedy of you know, typical lies destroyed so thoroughly that there's just no, um, no semblance of of anything normal. You know, it, whatever whatever we complain about, it's like, oh my God, these people lost everything. Yeah, you have million, literally, I think two million refugees, families separated, the husbands that, like you said, they're four to, uh, eighteen to sixty, I guess, right forced yes. to stay it's just and you see the you know more than ever before you see these horrific images on tv um it's just it's it's nauseating and and, and putin is just a, a madman i mean now we're hearing that he's actually attacked even when they have these uh exceptions that when they negotiate these supposed humanitarian aid 
ceasefires. There now there are reports that he's attacking civilians during the ceasefires. It's just unbelievable to have to live like that. I can't even imagine. I don't think many people can. And I don't, you know, in my lifetime, I've never seen a free country attacked like this. I haven't seen anything like this. So it's just unbelievable. Now we're running a little short on time. Uh, but such a such an important conversation. I, I really I want to ask you. I know you're working with a charity to help uh, people in Ukraine. Can you talk about that a little bit and how people can find the charity? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm just um, I got all uh, uh, I'm looking for the, for the words. I'll, I'll tell you. It's uh, yes, I have it. Um, yes. Yeah, so the name of the charity uh, basically is is Razum which in Ukrainian means together, Razum for Ukraine. And I don't know if maybe in the, in the, you have it in the show notes, or in, but I'm sure if you just Google R-A-Z-O-M for Ukraine, Razum for Ukraine, you'll find it. And um, it's, it's a great organization. I was just on a on Zoom call with, with a, uh, a bunch of other Russian-speaking educators here in New York, and the the person from this organization was speaking if you go on their website they, they really offer a variety of ways for people to help and and it doesn't have to be money because we we have we have influence in this world even as individuals right so you can write and call your elected officials they give you language they give you a way to what what would be most effective uh, you can they tell you how you can contact your congregational representatives uh, what would be most helpful they um, show, they give you a link how to donate directly to the Ukrainian army how to donate for helmets and vests to Ukraine um, uh, the emergency response how you can volunteer uh, locally uh, they give you a fact sheet so you understand what, what is going on about Russian aggression against Ukraine. Uh, there's just a lot of information and a lot of different ways to help that maybe, you know, different people can resonate uh, with different ways and can feel more comfortable with one way or the other or, or try all of them. But I think there's just such a sense. Um, I mean, obviously, so I have I have a personal connection. For me, it's very raw, very... Um, difficult um but i know like in my congregation people are so eager to help they may have a familiar connection of some some long lost connection to ukraine i hear a lot of oh my parents or my grandparents usually or great grandparents came from this city or that city but i think everybody wants to help um you know jeff we were doing uh, the concert um on sunday night which, yes please uh, talk about that <laughs> Yeah, it was, you know, it came together in like in three days for Cantor's Assembly, which is a professional organization of uh, conservative cantors. And uh, it was put together very quickly. We wanted to do something. We wanted to give, you know, we, we, we partnered with a bunch of organizations who are doing great work on the ground, helping people, um, authority movement, so on. There's just so many. And you can find that also on um, Cantor's dot uh, org forward slash ruach ukraine like spirit of ukraine ruach ukraine so they have a lot of there's a lot of different ways to help but what was striking to me is you know you put together a concert you know you have to work hard to bring an audience right it doesn't matter how good you are if the audience doesn't show up we had three days to do it and we had almost 20 people watching it on live stream on 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 YouTube, on Facebook. To me, that's not like because we are so special, right? Because, you know, like they wanted to hear us. 
to me, this is how much people want to help, how much everybody feels um, they're, they're, people are actively seeking ways to to do something. People people cannot tolerate this much pain without pouring into something concrete. And I think that was why we had such a tremendous response. And we were, we were thinking, what else can we do? What can we do next? And that is why I'm so grateful that you're having me speak today. I, I don't know what, what, you know, information I can share that people wouldn't find in other sources, but I know that I, I can just share um, the pain I'm feeling on behalf of my friends and family, but but all the people, all the innocent people in Ukraine caught in the cogs of this horrible war and um, and and try to try to get any help that I can. And we are going to help. I'm going to post it on my show's Twitter feed. And I also want to restate what you said. So it's Razom, R-A-Z-O-M, for Ukraine.org. That's the web. I'm looking at it right now. Yes, yes, yes. You have it. I have also the link. The link the, tree, yeah, which has the direct yeah. link to the... But I think this goes to that, I believe. And if not, we'll get the right link from you. We'll put it on our Twitter feed. Um, yes. But uh, we're, on a, we're up on a hard break. Natasha, such an important interview and such helpful information. And listen, thank you for what you're doing and bringing attention to this. It's so important. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jeff. Join me, and together we can rule the airwaves as listeners and Jeff Lacks. All right, we're back on Jeff Lax Live, 620 AM, WSNR, com. We can have a time for a call if you want to call in. Got a couple of minutes here, 646-926-4699, If you want to talk about Natasha Hirshhorn, great job by her. Or anything else, Ukraine, what's going on over there. Anything else you want to talk about, give us a call, 646 646- Nine two six four six nine nine. I want to get to something that is really kind of eating at me with the situation with the YU rape survivor. I don't know how else to say this. I'm really disappointed in the Jewish community. And frankly, I have to be honest, I'm surprised. I really thought after the last show, I really, really believed that after I testified as to the pictures that I saw of the bruising, the extensive bruising on her neck and I can't go through it again because it's just, it's too much. Listen, for me to say it's too much, can you imagine what it is for her? I can't do it. I don't have the mental right now, this particular moment right now at 9.55, the end of a show on a Wednesday night, I can't do it. But I really truly believed, I thought that once I spoke about what I saw, because no one else, no one else in the public had seen those pictures, I really believed that it would make a difference. I did. I, I actually believed it. You know what happened since then? I'm going to tell you what happened since then. Nothing. Nothing happened. I don't understand. You know, at the very least, at the very least, one thing is abundantly clear that why you really did not handle this remotely okay. Again, I'm not going to get into details again because I have already. But where, where is the Jewish media? on this. Where are they? Where are the newspapers? Where are the podcasts? There's a million Jewish podcasts. There's a podcast for every subtopic and subtopic of a subtopic out there, and you have no time for this? You're not the least bit interested about a woman who has evidence that she was raped, sexually assaulted, bruising on her neck that I saw? 
You're not interested. Why? What is going on here? At the very beginning of this, I asked Asher Lowick because he came on the show. I said, do you think, asking something like this, this is not a quote, I'm sorry. Do you think the Jewish community handles this differently in a way that's not like anybody else? And he basically said yes. And I have to be honest, I really appreciated everything he said. And I thought he brought a lot to the table, a lot. That's the one thing I didn't necessarily want to believe maybe or believe. I do now. They don't, the Jewish community, our community does not deal with this the way normal communities do. They just don't. I'm seeing it now. The idea that I, okay, I let, let's be clear about this, okay? I'm nobody. I am nobody. How many listeners do I have per show? A hundred? Maybe, maybe. If you combine online streaming, the podcast, and the radio, a hundred, two hundred? I don't know. At most, on a good night, maybe I'll get a few hundred. So I am nobody. There are podcasts out there, thousands and thousands and thousands of listeners. They don't want to talk about this. I hear Ryan Terrell on it, and I, I bear no ill will towards him. And I know that almost everyone on that team was totally innocent, at least. Except for the person being accused and a friend of his. They're having them on all the time. They lost last week. I don't I don't want them to lose. I still was hoping for them to win. Because I know most of those guys are good people. So but they have time for all that, all these Jewish podcasts. They don't have time to hear this woman's story. That's disgusting. It's really disappointing. And I'm running out of time here on the show. I literally have a bit. the music's gonna start playing in a second. But I wish I had more time because I wanted to touch on this. I'm going to have to get into it next week. There it is. I'm so disappointed. I really am. I'm so disappointed in the community. Bigger people than me should be covering this. And the fact that they're not, it just makes you wonder what the hell's going on? What are they protecting? And I'm not saying you have to even believe her story, but at least address it, cover it, talk about it, find out. You're not curious at all? Terrible job by the community. Shame on you.